everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and they always laugh when I say that because down here in South Florida, it is beautiful this morning, but you're going to laugh because we have a cold front coming in, and a cold front tomorrow means it's going to be 82 instead of 88. So I love living down here, and it's funny because I just had a conversation with a couple of fellows who have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and have done some cold things, and I'm thinking, mm-mm, I'm a Florida girl now. I like the warm weather, and today is a beautiful, beautiful day for that. So welcome to Stand Up and Speak Up. I have an extraordinary guest today, a young man that I'm not going to give his bio. I don't like to do that because I want him to tell us who he is. But Ashke Navati is here, and Ashke, I've got to give credit, is a Marine Corps veteran. He's an Awakening Giant, a group that I'm associated with. He is an adventurer, and he's a survivor. So Ashke, are you here with me today? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome, welcome. You're coming to us from Arizona. Probably still dark there right now. Yep. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here early. I really appreciate it. For my audience's um, information, you and I have not met in person, but we were Mm -hmm. um, trainers on an Awakening Giants webinar a couple weeks ago. And when I heard Mm -hmm. you speak, when I heard your story, I'm like, I need to meet that young man. And it's going to be distance meeting. But what an extraordinary story. So, Ashke, I like to start off my show telling people about your background and who you are, where you are where you come from, and a little bit about your family. So can you tell me where you, where you started off this great life? Sure, yeah. I was, born, I was born in Bombay, India. And I moved from Bombay to Bangalore, lived in India for the first eight years of my life. Okay, so your family is still there? No, well, my family is there now, but we've moved around a lot since, like we moved around a lot before they went back there. We moved from, Bomb- from India to Singapore, Singapore to Austin, Austin to Minneapolis, then when I parted ways, went to college and the Marines, they went to Israel, and now they're back in India. Oh, my, uh, my IT team is in Mumbai. And, um, ah, I got you. Okay. Yeah, it's great. I was over there uh, two years ago with Sprite, Loriano, and um, yeah. it wasn't Awakening Giants. We went over to speak at the Women's Economic Forum in oh, yeah, I remember that. Very southern cool. India. I'm having a brain cramp yeah. on where we actually were. Phenomenal experience. It was before the pandemic, 
And yep, yep, Raj and yep. I were talking about how the pandemic has changed India, and you, you know you've got you have family over there. But for me, just globally wise, the, the when I flew into Mumbai, actually when I flew into Mumbai and I was getting ready to fly out the next morning, I couldn't see the sky. There was so much pollution, and mm, yeah. that has changed over the years. The last two years, it has cleared up because people weren't driving. They weren't, you know. Mm. It was amazing. India yeah. was lovely, lo- lovely to me, but just sensory overload. There was so much to see and smell <laughs> and the understand. cows in the streets. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have one older brother. He lives in Armenia. Oh, what? A, that's we're interesting. Very, like, we're very global. Yeah, my guest <laughs> last week was from Armenia, and uh, oh, cool. Okay. It's just, Heard it's beautiful out there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, beautiful country. Um, so you've got an older brother, and you grew up in India as a young child. What did you like to do? Read, or I mean, like you do a lot of extreme stuff now. So were you like that as a kid? I do. I was not. I mean, I was very athletic. I used to always be sort of outside playing when I was a kid, into running, rugby, you name the sport. But I wasn't super. Uh, adventurous. I was terrified of a lot of things. <laughs> I was terrified of roller coasters, terrified of even Ferris wheels, let alone roller coasters. I was scared of a lot of things as a kid, <laughs> uh, but I was still athletic. I think uh, that, that part has stayed with me, but the being paralyzed by fear part has not. <laughs> That's kind of moved, uh, uh, trained in that arena a good deal. So question, if you were scared like that, did you get teased as your brother? I mean, I've got three brothers. Did they tease you? Did he tease you about that kind of stuff? Uh, no, not so much, you know, because it didn't necessarily show up a lot. But I do remember, like, so, for example, when we lived in Singapore, we lived in Singapore for five years, and my parents took us around the region to, to explore. They believed travel was an invaluable education, which I would wholeheartedly agree. Uh, so we traveled a lot around Southeast Asia. We went to Australia at one point, And when we, were, we went to Australia, we were snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef. And I remember snorkeling and uh, seeing the, the reef sort of drop off into the ocean, into this black nothingness of the, end of the ocean. And it freaked me out, and I instantly turned around. And today I'm a scuba diver who's a certified rescue diver, and I've been cave diving. You know what I mean? So <laughs> uh, he, didn't, he didn't sort of tease me so much because it's not like it showed up on a regular basis. But when we did things like that, I would, I would notice it. I, do, I don't remember this particular incident, but my mom told me that there was an incident when they, they went on this. I think it was a, either a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel or something like that. It was, it was like nothing, you know, that wouldn't necessarily terrify me today for sure. Uh, but she took me out and my and, and I was apparently terrified. I didn't want, want to go, but she was like, you know, sort of man up kind of thing, go. And my and apparently the whole ride, I was sitting there with this horrified look in my face, like with my mouth open, my you know, and just holding on, like clinging onto the the bar in front of me for dear life. And my grandma, my mom's mom, fired my mom for doing that. And my mom was like, what's wrong with him? She just ran up. And so today I kind of joke with my mom that, well, you created this monster that I am now today, you know. So <laughs> because now I do a lot of dangerous things and my poor mom is very stressed out, understandably, about the life that I live. <laughs> well, it makes me laugh because those things just happen. I mean, I, I've done things too. I've jumped out of planes and walked on fire and that kind of stuff. But I, I go back, I was showing my my brother the other day, or one of my boys, um, the Royal Gorge out in Colorado. And my husband and I went out there, and it's pretty deep, you know. My heart just pounded out of my chest. I was so scared (laughs) to walk across the bridge. 
I was going down the middle of this <laughs> bridge that trucks were driving on. I'm thinking, you wimp, you know. But there's something about that <laughs> wide open fall, and I'm like, this. It was so irrational, and I, I still, I still, I'm still scared of many of the things that I do today. I just am able to move through the fear instead of being paralyzed at it by it. But I'm still terrified. I still get nervous, <laughs> nervous of heights, and I've, I've been skydiving, bungee jumping, rock climbing, mountain climbing. And I still, I mean, when I was on Denali a few weeks ago climbing in Alaska, when you're standing on an edge of a cliff and you're seeing a monstrous thousands of feet drop to the side of you, that's understandably nerve-wracking. Yeah. <laughs> it's just what you do with that fear that matters, you know? Oh, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you already have my heart just beating through my chest. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so wh- why the extreme sports? What? Well, let's go back. Okay. So you, I read somewhere, or I heard somewhere that part of your um, youth is partying and turned into addiction. So we're going to jump right yes, into that one because I might, you know, I have three boys, and there are things that I probably mm-hmm. didn't know. I know there were things that I didn't want to know. Um, mm-hmm. But part of the band of brothers is you start hanging around doing things you shouldn't have done. How did that affect? you getting through school? You know, uh, I got, and I don't sort of today being, being who I am, I don't blame anybody else. I take responsibility for my actions, but as a young impressionable youth who's moved around to four different cities by the age of 13, I wasn't very sure of myself. I was very, um, at the effect of my environment and very adaptable. So adaptability has its pros for sure. But if you're not, if you don't do that with consciousness and awareness, you can be very impressionable and, you know, sort of mold into the force of the environment. So I got into a group of friends who, again, I take responsibility, but as a result, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol, and being the kind of person that I am, and I think that the, the remnants of the, the, the birth of that was still showing, like I was always the kind of person pushing the line, you know. So I still do that today, but I do that in a positive way. Back then, it was through drugs, and that was my, it was a very negative vehicle of expression to push the line, but I was the guy starting to, me and one other person in our group, we went from doing marijuana and alcohol to harder drugs, and he's no longer alive today. He ended up, kept going down the path, and he OD'd on heroin. So I was heading down that path, you know, world of self-destruction. Uh, we used to do a lot of dangerous things, many, many dangerous things, <laughs> going for stories for, uh, for, for, for a full hour just on that, but I won't. But a lot of dangerous things that could have killed me, I was very self-destructive. I had scars in my arm from cutting myself. I'm burning myself, you know, just a very self-destructive lifestyle and lost two friends to it, was heading down that path, but thankfully watching the movie Black Hawk Down was the trigger that changed my life. That's what got me out of that world and into the Marines. I was going to say, explain that, because I love that movie. Yeah, that movie, I mean, as you know, it's a, it's a war movie based on a true story, and there is a particular, uh, there's a particular scene in the movie, which of course is a true incident, where these two Delta snipers, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they volunteer to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter to protect the second Black Hawk that crashed. Michael Durant was inside of it, the pilot Michael Durant. And they volunteer to go on the ground knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are heading towards the chopper, and they had no idea when reinforcements would arrive. And yet they went down there, and they ultimately died protecting Michael Durant. And they received a Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military. They received it posthumously for their courage. And they died. The man they died protecting, Michael Durant, is still alive today because of their actions. And after watching that movie and watching that particular scene, among many other tales of um, you know, heroism and courage in the movie, 
And then I read the book Black Hawk Down, which sort of elaborated further on how these men sacrificed their well-being, sacrificed their very lives for the men next to them. And that triggered something in me. I mean, what kind of human being would do that, you know? What kind of courage does it take? Do, do I have that inside of me? And I didn't like this very selfish, meaningless, worthless existence that I was living at the time, and I didn't like that I didn't really have an answer to that. So after reading the book, Black Hawk Down, I started devouring book after book after book on military life and combat, and almost overnight, you know, stopped doing drugs and decided I wanted to experience that world where the good of the group matters more than the good of the individual. So it took me about a year and a half to get into the Marines because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me at the regular boot camp. I also have flat feet, I also have scoliosis. So I had to get a bunch of medical waivers and eventually, because especially because this is a post-9-11 world, uh, in all honesty, if it wasn't a post-9-11 world, I almost certainly would not have gotten in. And I know this for a fact because I know people who haven't gotten in just because of uh, flat feet, let alone the other things I had. But because it was, you know, we were dire need for, for people who wanted to go, and because it was, I managed, managed to get the medical waiver I needed and uh, and finally got in after about a year and a half of sort of fighting my way into the Marines. Well, I honor you for your service for that. And uh, I, Thank my you. family, I've got a son that's a Marine Corps officer right now and his wife and my an Army pilot, oh. his wife. So I know that story of Black Hawk Down personally because, you know, when I watch mm-hmm. it, I, I can see my boys flying. And that would be mm-hmm. just an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I also feel I, I understand your desire to serve uh obviously i did that back in the 80s too and when i went went into the air force and there is something Mm -hmm. and i heard you talk about it it's like uh we were talking about happiness you were talking about happiness and you said no one cares in the military if you're happy today it's all about the mission and when i heard you say that i'm thinking you know what that is true nobody asked us how i mean personally they would but as a whole it's about the mission yeah 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 and you have to live exactly. your life that way because boot camp is not an easy thing. You went through Marine Corps boot camp. Where'd you go? Pendleton or were you here on the East Coast? I was in San Diego and Pendleton, so I was a quote-unquote Hollywood Marine, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty place to be, but I wouldn't want to be there. For, and uh, so that was but when you joined the, mil- the military, you were obviously young. You Explain to the folks what you did when you were in Iraq. Yeah, so I signed up as infantry in the Marines and uh, had many different jobs in Iraq, one of which was to walk in front of our vehicle convoys during our patrols and to look for IEDs, to look for the bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. So, you know, uh, somewhat dangerous job, to say the least, Some, because if somebody somewhat. was going to get blown up first, you know, guess who would it be? <laughs> Isn't there some technology or something that, why would they have young men doing that? I'm asking, and I'm well, a military person, but I'm just like, oh, my gosh. No, it's a fair, fair question. Uh, because, you know, every time, so like, I'll, I'll give you an example. When we, uh, one of our very common, quote-unquote, danger zones was a bridge. Because on a bridge, they could plant bombs on the side, you know, yeah. side or under with wires. So someone has to sort of clear the bridge in order for the vehicle to wave, the, then they wave the vehicle convoy through. But anytime we did find something, we would then call EOD, which is Explosive Ordnance Disposal, and they would come in usually with robots or something, sort of dispose it. So our job wasn't to dispose it. Ideally, we wouldn't want to find it before they could be used, uh, but uh, on us. But we did we did do a pretty good job of that. We we uh, only one vehicle in our company actually got hit with an IED. Thankfully, nobody was killed. Everybody lived through the incident. But um, 
we did a pretty good job as a unit finding the IEDs before they could be used. But that was kind of the reason was just to clear any potential danger areas, just to do a sort of ground check and verify that there's no wires or anything or no bombs. And if we were to find it, you know, obviously, ideally, the best case scenario, which is kind of how it went down, that you can find it, then you can sort of clear the area, set up the perimeter of poly OD, and they dispose it. Worst case scenario, obviously, being, you know, you're walking through it and, and, and they use it. But thankfully, that did not happen. And we we came back alive. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. And I'm sitting here, and part of me is thinking, oh, my gosh, the fear. But I know with my boys, they're, they're very well trained in what they do. You don't think about mm -hmm. fear. Your mothers would be thinking mm -hmm. about, oh, my gosh, what is my son doing? Very much so. How did you get through that? And, and maybe as, the, as your group, again, the whole mission, are you thinking about fear? Are you thinking about what, your, what the repercussions could have been or not? You know, for me particularly, because by the time I got deployed to Iraq, I see after joining the Marines and getting out of sort of drugs and all the other stuff, I, after joining the Marines, I now wanted a positive avenue to channel that energy to look for that high. To, uh, and, and the Marines sort of, birthed this love for me to confront adversity, to confront my fears, to explore the, the limitlessness of the human potential. So I got big into outdoor sports. I went rock climbing, mountain climbing, uh, scuba diving, you kind of name it, all those fears of things that I had, like heights, like water, all of it. I confronted one step at a time. And and I even used to rock climb free solo without, without rope, you know, so climb 60-foot, 80-foot rock walls without rope. So point is to say that by the time I went out to Iraq, I had – navigated fear a great deal. And so I was very comfortable in the arena of fear. And therefore, I did not, I did not, I mean, it's not to say I never felt it. Uh, I for sure did. It's an intense environment or war zone. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it, it, I was very comfortable in playing in that realm by this point, you know, especially because I particularly uh, had done a lot of lot of dangerous things even up to that point. Not to mention when I went to the war, you know, before I went to Iraq, I lost a very close friend of mine uh, from my unit to the war. So when I went, I was still battling a lot of guilt that I did not go out with my buddy and that I believe I should have gone out with. And so when I went, I went out there with almost a, I wouldn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a death wish per se. I wasn't suicidal, but I did, I was ready to die. I didn't, I did not expect to come back alive in some way. Some part of me, like, I mean, I gave away all my stuff before going to Iraq because a big part of me didn't expect to come back alive, which needless to say made it a bit awkward when I did, and I was like, hey, I'm going to need my stuff back. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but, but, yeah, so I was, you know, I was, I was ready for whatever, and I was happy to have that job. I would rather have it been not, not you know, it was assigned to me. I didn't choose it, but nonetheless, I would rather have it been me than somebody else. So, and it wasn't just me. It was me and one other Marine. You had to clear sort of each side of any, a bridge or any danger zone, you know, one of the left, one of the right. So it was two of us that did that. Were there guys that were around you that did have fears? And, and because of your training or whatever, were you able to help them through those fears as a support? You know, uh, it's not that we had sort of much time. Our particular squad, we were out the wire, which is the, the wire is the base. We were out on missions almost every day. I mean, in the entire seven months, we were probably got like seven days off. We were out all the time. Point is to say, you don't have much time to sort of support somebody through things you know uh usually in nature especially when when we're at war and unfortunately it, it tends to stay even when we come back this idea you know like suck it up which look i'm not saying that doesn't have its place sometimes you got to suck it up and go out on the mission for sure 
but sometimes you do need support. And, uh, and when, especially when you came back, there's a lot of people who struggled, and I've lost two junior Marines who were in my unit to suicide, you know. And had they got some support, it probably could have made a difference. So point is to say, out there, we didn't have much time to sort of support each other. But I do know for a fact that there were people who definitely, in our very squad, who felt fear more often on certain missions than I did. And it's not that I was any braver. The lack of fear was not a symbol of my courage. But the lack of fear was simply because my brain, I had more references to navigating risk. I had trained in it. So the absence of fear is not, necess- is not at all an a-, a sign of courage. In fact, you can't have courage without fear because if, it takes, if you don't feel fear, you can't exercise courage to move through the fear, right? Like if it feels – the only reason it, I did not have fear as often was because I had done risky things and my brain had different references as to what entails risk, if that makes sense. It does. And, uh, and I'm, part of me is thinking as a military person and part of me is thinking as a mom, when kids were little or you had to get them out of danger really quick, you're not thinking about what's happening until after the fact. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down mm-hmm. and that's when your body starts to shake and all these things come out. Like, mm-hmm. So when you mm-hmm. got back home, because I know you said you you were diagnosed PTSD, was that mm-hmm. while you were in the service or after? Because I know sometimes you don't want to have that diagnosis while you're in the military because very they can much. hold that against you. The diagnosis happened years later. I mean, when I, as soon as I came back, I was struggling. I did not handle or did not like life back here in the normal world. I wanted to go back to war. There's a very strange allure and addiction to the experience of war. Um, it It's not sort of a, a, a morbid thing. It sounds kind of messed up to say that about war, but war meets many of the human needs in a very profound way. And uh, it's a very addictive re- experience, therefore, you know. So I wanted to go back. I, wanted, I kept trying to say, send me back to Iraq, send me back to Afghanistan, just send me back, you know. Did not get my chance. And the, by this point, the wars were ending as well. So what I decided to do, I went to mass, my, I went to, I went to go get my gra- a master's degree in journalism because I wanted to go back to war as a combat journalist. Um, because, again, I just craved that return. But that plan changed again. I met my my then wife at the time, and, um, you know, we kind of got into the quote-unquote normal life. I mean, got a corporate job for a year and a half, and then after that I went and spent one month dragging a 190-pound sled for 350 miles across Greenland in minus 40 degrees. And even then, I, I wasn't as aware of it now as I – I mean, back then as I am now, but I was, I was seeking a return to hostile environment because mm-hmm. I wanted the simplicity of that. So that's why I went to Greenland. I was just looking to be in a world where – you do have to worry about like living or dying, and the mission is very clear and very simple. When I came back in Greenland, at this point now, I quit my corporate job. I have started starting a business, and without any external structure to guide my consciousness, the external structure of either the military or a, you know, or a corporate job where they externally impose structure, or even life like it when you're climbing mountains or skiing across an ice cap, the structure is very clear. Without any of that, in the normal world, the demons started to rise up. And I was building my business, but simultaneously navigating a lot of this stuff that eventually hit a breaking point. I mean, like usually I'll, I would maybe start by drinking one day a week, then two, and slowly have over a period of years that built to three, four, five. And I mean, I was at a point where I'm down a full bottle a day, you know. Um, and eventually after five days of severe binge drinking, I remember waking up one morning and I was seconds away from picking up a knife and slitting my wrist because I just mm-hmm. didn't take it anymore this pattern of drinking, sobering up, drinking, sobering up. And, and so that was rock bottom. That was when I said, okay, like something, the fact that even a thought of taking my own life entered my mind 
was very jarring to me. And at that point, I knew something needed to change, and I knew I needed to do something different. So it wasn't like a slow, easy climb out of the abyss. It was very rocky. I drank again after that moment. But that was the trigger that began the rise out, you know, the climb out into light. I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, taking all my life experience I've already had, pairing together with that, and beganing, began the journey out of that darkness into who I am today. But it was in that process where I had gone to the via therapist that diagnosed PTSD and was battling, you know, depression, PTSD addiction, which is kind of in a bad way until I hit rock bottom. Who was there to support you for that? I mean, because a lot of people would stay at the bottom. And were there, were there family Absolutely. members or friends that, that helped you up along, or was it your pure will that wanted to do it? You know, uh, I, didn't, I didn't tell my parents at the time. I didn't tell too many people at the time because I was embarrassed. I was ashamed yeah. of it. You know, I didn't want them. I didn't want them to worry about it either. I didn't want them to know, and I, I was embarrassed that, that that's who I had become. But my wife at the time, I'm no longer married to her, but my wife at the time, she inevitably knew. And so she was very, very, very supportive for sure. Uh, but, and while without a doubt, she was very supportive of my journey and, and, uh, and helped a great deal. But the key thing, you know, is that you, nobody can do this work for you. Nobody can change you for you. You have to make the choice, you know, because I, since then, I've had a lot of people reach out to me struggling with addiction and or people who are family of somebody else struggling with addiction. And it's a hard thing, especially when your family struggling with somebody with addiction. You obviously want them to change. But until that person at least makes the choice to want to change, mm-hmm. that's that you have to want to. I mean, I'm not saying it'll be a smooth ride. Like I said, I drank again. I broke my sobriety many, 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 many times. Can't eat more than I can count, you know? Um, what I mean when I broke my sobriety, when I decided to be sober, like when I made the choice, I've since fallen many, many times before I finally am now actually sober in, in the place I find myself in today. But point is to say that that decision to at least sober up, it has to come from within. And sometimes when I see families, who, uh, members who, are, who have somebody else struggling with addiction, I often ask, you know, do they at least want to change? And if it's a no, there's not much you can do, you know. It's, I mean, I'm not saying there's not, not anything you can do. Like, so point is to say with the support I had, they were very supportive, but I had to do the inner work myself. I had to go into those spaces myself to confront whatever demons laid dormant within me, bring them to the surface so I could engage them and deal with them and use them as, as fuel to keep moving my life forward in a positive way. Because the demons are never going to go away. You just learn to work with them. You learn to channel them. You learn to engage them, and you learn to transcend them. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Very much so. That's and that and I'm glad you pointed out because it, it is it is frustrating when I sometimes see sort of in the self help person of the world or you know this one ma- aha moment and you know change will happen instantly and I think it's nonsense. I think you can know, have an aha moment like I did when I hit rock bottom, but then you have to do the work to change neurological, physical, spiritual patterns of behavior that are that are you know that are a part of you. You have to do the work to, over and over and over again. And even today, the work doesn't stop. I mean. Yes, I'm in a very, very good place mentally, spiritually than I've ever been before, but I still have low moments. I'm human, you know, and that work of awareness, of relentless self-awareness and then applying that with action, it never, ever, ever stops. And that's, that's not a bad thing because the work is where the, 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 the adventure, the journey, the lessons, the treasures all lie within there, you know. So it's important, but to, to stress that it didn't happen instantly, it was definitely a rocky road 
it was hard, like, clawing my way out of the abyss, you know. But over time and a lot of, a lot of that, it, it eventually led to now having my book, Fearvana, being an entrepreneur and adventurer and explorer and, uh, you know, in a good space where life is going really good. Wow, this has been incredible. Actually, this, the hour has flown by. I want people to be able to follow you and to find your book. Where can, where can we find those? Um, on social media, the primary platform I use is Instagram. My, you can find me at Fearvana. My website is also Fearvana. And the book Fearvana, which is F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, it's available on Amazon, Audible, Kindle, paperback, and 100% of the profits of the book go to charities. We support many beautiful causes all over the world. You can find and that's, per- that's perfect. And how are, how are people going to follow you on this grand adventure? I'll, be, I'll have a live tracker on my expeditions uh, where you can follow me at fearvana.com. Can't wait to see that, fearbonded.com. It's been extraordinary to hear your story. And again, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you're doing now. And the strength that has come thank through you. your struggles is extraordinary. And, uh, and I honor that. So, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, please make a small donation to help the victims around the world receive the help that they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, Check out our Benfa teaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here with us today. Go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com for additional information and resources. Check out my YouTube channel and subscribe and follow the replays of all of our great guests. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much for being here.